The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sidharman, the editor of The Homes Report. We're very lucky to be joined today on the line from Bangkok, Thailand, um, by Karun Badraja, who's the Vice President of Corporate Marketing and Communications for Amadeus in Asia Pacific. Karun, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you, Arun. Thank you for having me. Um, before we get into our conversation, I just wondered if perhaps you could give our listeners a little background um, on your career. Uh, so perhaps a little bit on what you do at Amadeus and, and, um, and your career uh, before Amadeus as well. Sure. Um, well, I've always been in the travel industry because I was fascinated by travel. So I joined the airline. I, mm-hmm. I worked in Air France, in, in Europe and in India. Post that, um, or prior to uh, to Air France, I, I also worked in a travel industry, uh, in in, uh, in a travel agency, uh, quite literally selling tickets uh, uh, on the counter because that also fascinated me how people travel. Mm-hmm. And after that, I, I decided to venture into travel technology just to see how the technology behind travel runs, and that's my well, that's where my story um, in Amadeus began. It was almost 17 years back. Started in India. And then about 10 or 11 years back, I, I moved to Thailand uh, to take charge of the marketing communication side uh, for Amadeus in Asia Pacific here in Bangkok. Okay. And of course, it's, it's interesting times for the, for the travel industry. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, is some research that you did last year um, or, or that Amadeus did last year looking at Asia Pacific travelers. Um, mm. You pointed out in this research that uh, this region, Asia Pacific, is already the world's largest travel market, which I think perhaps people sometimes forget. And yet, um, it's a big mistake, I think, to see this region as kind of this homogenous space where everyone wants the same things in terms of travel. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you, Aaron, on this one. We started this research because we wanted to understand the traveler in Asia Pacific a bit better. Um, The last couple of years, uh, we've often termed this age of travel as the age of traveler power. I mean, it started with the golden age of travel and then went on to the age of mass travel. And now I really feel it is the age of traveler power. Why do I say that? Because uh, today's traveler, he or she is um, is empowered with technology, with social and mobile and wearable technologies at hand. So the traveler really knows what to do, where to go, when to go, how much to spend. So it's not the industry that is dictating the traveler where to go, but it's the other way around. So the motivations and, and, and behaviors of travel are completely different now. And when I say now, it's been, uh, let's say, the past three to four years uh, that's where the story of the traveler began. And hence, uh, we wanted to go dive deeper and understand what are those uh, those behaviors and motivations of, of travelers. So there came this, this report of ours, which we, we conducted last year across Asia-Pacific 15 markets. Um, it was called The Journey of Me. To a, to a number of uh, industry specialists, it sounded, and they came to me and with some very interesting feedback saying, it's very narcissistic, you know, when you say the journey of me. 
But quite honestly, it is all about me. The way you travel, Arun, or the way I am traveling, or, or my colleagues travel, whether for business or for leisure, is completely different. Um, and, and it's not just different demographically, but also when I look at geographically. So the markets which we, we, we conducted our studies were across, uh, across the board, 14, 15 markets, starting from India on one side, going on to Australia, uh, New Zealand, uh, Southeast Asia, and also the north of Asia. A startling um, fact came out that no two individuals or no two travelers are alike, and you cannot bundle and or call someone an Asia-Pacific traveler with the same uh, with the same motivation and the same behavior. It was very very different. Um, when I look at cities or countries like Malaysia and Singapore, they're just a border away. The, the findings were very different of how they use technology and how they travel. So that's where this particular study uh, study came out. Mm. And how much of a challenge do you feel that poses for the travel industry? Because I assume that they would like to put people into more convenient boxes rather than being told that every single one of their customers is different and has mm. different preferences. Yes, if you if you start thinking of putting putting travelers in a box, that's where business models go wrong. Mm. Um, the travel industry has to evolve, and it is evolving. Um, personalization, it, yes, it is a buzzword, but it is all about personalization. Gone are the days where a traveler will go into a travel agency, pick up a brochure and say, yes, this is uh, how I want to travel. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's completely gone away. That still exists, yet, because you do have those first-time travelers, and some of them are nervous travelers coming from uh, various geographies across Asia-Pacific, who wouldn't mind doing that. That's where we get into the group travel bit. But more and more what we see is people are wanting to do travel the way they want to, uh, to travel. Mm -hmm. It's technology at their fingertips. Um, it's not what you want to, uh, want to say, it's what they want to hear. And that's, what, uh, what, what, that's the shift that we're seeing in travel as well. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing any specific trends in terms of where travelers are getting their information from? Um, yes, we are, and, and, and this journey of me is a, uh, is, is a great insight for us, and we continue to use that. Of course, your friends and family seem to be at the very top, even now, followed by social and, and uh, online. That's where we are seeing um, uh, people are following trends. But these trends differ from country to country. Mm. Um, like when I look at Japan as a country, there it is definitely on friends and family. But however, if I look at Indonesia or Philippines, that's where the power of social media comes in they, because they are highly connected because the, the mobile penetration is almost 70% in those countries. Um, an individual would have more than one mobile device and that's where they're going to. So again, it is very different. But when, if I have to really say what are the top two, I still say that's friends and family, which came out in the report, followed by uh, social and mobile. Okay, interesting. And how about the rise of the so-called influencer? I mean, there's been a lot of coverage uh, mm. of influencers, you know, especially in terms of social media influencers on Instagram and perhaps on YouTube. Um, some controversy in, in terms of, of how they're being used sometimes by hotels or, or how their own... Um, recommendations are coming across online. Um, how do you see that playing out in Asia? That's a very interesting question, Arun. Um, yes, we do see the rise of influencers or what we call it influencer marketing. 
that again, the, the finding that we uh, that we got from this report was influencers are, are trying to be as authentic as possible. But when it comes to travel recommendations, people want it real. They don't want really a glossy brochure or, um, you know, uh, craftily uh, created or curated Instagram feeds. They like to follow that. But will that influence them to travel? The answer is no. That's where they go back on to peer-to-peer recommendations more than celebrity endorsements. Mm. So again, it's a it's a fine line between what is authentic and what is real. So mm. the real kind of wins the game here. Mm. Do you think there's perhaps a little bit too much infatuation with with the power of uh, of these uh, social media influences? I mean, it sounds like you think that they they may have authenticity issues. Yeah, it's 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 generational. I think um, yes, we we often talk about the millennials, or now we're talking about the Gen Z uh, or the iGen generation. They definitely are looking at the Kardashians of the world, uh, quite honestly. But um, if if you look at the Gen Xs or the baby boomers, still there's substantial amount of travel for them. It's not so much about influencer marketing as compared to the younger generation. Um, so that's where we see the mix. But as we move forward uh, a few years from now, when um, the millennials are already into the workforce and a generation younger to them, when they get into uh, to the workforce, things are going to change drastically. Mm-hmm. That's where the power, real power of uh, influencers will come in, along with artificial intelligence and machine learning. That's where we see um, the travel community and the travel industry may need to evolve a bit more, radically change. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, and you you talked uh, earlier about the, um, the the rise of social media in terms of how uh, people make their travel buying decisions now, and obviously we've seen the power of sites like TripAdvisor and so on. Um, do you feel like these sites are too powerful these days? Um, yes, I would say I won't. I won't call them. They're too powerful, but they're powerful sites because they've done. They've got the equation right. Especially, I mean, you touched upon uh, on TripAdvisor. Mm. Yes, TripAdvisor started with just recommendations. It's something like it's quite a success story, like Amazon, where they started selling books, and now they're selling from a needle to a wallpaper to almost anything and everything. Mm. When I look at TripAdvisor, where it started with just pure recommendations, and when they launched, of course, they also faced a lot of flack because people said or thought they are fake um, advertisers on board as what they were called astroturfers, you know, writing fake reviews, and, and yeah. some were real reviews. But today, TripAdvisor is a very, very different organization. Mm. Um, people are going to a TripAdvisor, followed probably by a YouTube, just to see what their, their resort or the hotel really looks like because that's where the experience comes in. Um, today's generation, or travelers today, let's put it that way, uh, are looking at both. They want those reviews, but they want to experience the place through video. So the audio video is, is a large component of travel, mm. followed by what people are saying. And mm. TripAdvisor has gone a step further. If I go on to TripAdvisor and I'm researching a hotel or looking at reviews, um, they have the algorithm uh, correctly done or, or, or put in over there, they would say, let's say, if you are my friend on Facebook and Arun has traveled to an X hotel, if mm. you have put in your review, it says your friend Arun, who is on Facebook, says this, this, and this, mm-hmm. which is very, very personalized. And immediately there's a click uh, from a traveler's point of view by saying, yes, if he, as my friend, has gone and written well about that hotel, why not? Let me go and 
tested for myself. Mm-hmm. Are there still concerns about you know negative reviews on TripAdvisor and perhaps um, some of these kind of more nefarious activities? Mm-hmm. You know, so, some of the things you, we've we've heard in the past about competition between, um, let's say, hotels, for example. You know, in terms of of negative reviews. Um, when you read a review on any particular site, whether it is a hotel.com or a meta search uh, site, or whether it is your trip advisors of the world, I think as a traveler or as a consumer, it is our responsibility uh, responsibility to balance out what is right and what is wrong, because that's where um, that's where the buying power is, and that's how you will make a decision. Mm. If I read too many good reviews about a hotel. Subconsciously, I feel no. There's something wrong. It has to be. There has to be a negative review. So when I look at these sites, some sites have got the balance uh, or, or the equation. It's a correct equation. They mm-hmm. will start with a good review and and follow it up with uh, not so good and a negative review, so that it gives a clear picture. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that's the right way to do it. <laughs> some uh, some resorts or some hotels or some services are fantastic, and they have not really experienced uh, any negative reviews. But mm-hmm. as consumers, that's the way we all think. That mm-hmm. yes, the good has to come with the bad, you know. So and then that that's more of a um, a kind of a homogeneous mix. Sure. So you've talked about the um, the kind of diversity you've seen across the region uh, in terms of of Asia Pacific travelers. But how does that kind of diversity inform your own marketing strategy at Amadeus? Right. Um, you know, when I joined the region, it was really funny. Um, I thought I'm going to come up with one communications, one marketing or a brand plan across Asia Pacific, and that's going to fit. I, uh, that was absolutely uh, far from the, um, from the real truth, to be honest. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. What works in India may not work in Australia, and what works in Australia may not work uh, in Indonesia or Vietnam or any other country. Um, when we talk about diversity, um, people talk about Asia, and that's where the growth is. This is the growth engine, growth, uh, growth innovation, 800 languages, um, X number of nationalities and dialects, etc., etc. And that's what reflects in my team as well. We are a team of about 25 people and 16 nationalities uh, speaking about 18 languages. Where do you begin? What's the common thread? What's the golden uh, thread? I would say, or if in, in Amadeus, we call, always call it the blue thread, that what is that linchpin which kind of binds us together? Um, it's very important to understand diversity. It's very important uh, to accept diversity and respect it and move on from there. I always say no culture is wrong. Um, so people need to understand whether they're from the West or the East, what is that other individual trying to say and how he or she is uh, trying to behave. And in our communication efforts, uh, this is what we try to reflect. Um, Yes, I did try uh, a mantra was, well, if I have a person sitting in my regional office who's an Indian, let he or she cover India. Or if a person is Australian, let he or she cover Australian market. It works. But on the other hand, I think it is extremely important for people to understand that diverse culture. So diversity breeds insights. It's the bedrock of innovation. So I've always tried to put people where, you know, um, where they challenge themselves. And of course, they start learning as well. So this is something which, which we follow quite closely within Amadeus. 
Do you think there's a risk, um, particularly when it comes to these big, you know, big global companies, um, that they do prefer a kind of one-size-fits-all approach, uh, and it becomes more difficult to accommodate different points of view? Um, it is a democratic world, by and large, and organizations who follow a one-size-fits-all approach are truly not global in nature, I feel. If you really want to become a global company, a highly respected global company, you have to accept diversity. Um, if I surround myself with people who think like me or act like me or behave like me, um, I'm going to end up, that's a blind spot for me. You have to surround with, uh, yourself with people who don't really think like you at all, because that's where innovation kicks in. But that's a difficult part, as what you said, because that's where you are in a way compromising with your, with, with your own mental makeup. But that's the way the world is. Uh, you have to imbibe all of that in order to kind of deliver good products, good solutions and, and, and uh, to, to your customers and, and to your consumers. Even if it makes you uncomfortable, presumably? Initially, yes, it does. But it, it, it kind of weans off very, very quickly because that's where, uh, that's where the true magic happens, I, I feel. That the moment, uh, like in our team, as what I said, we have so many different nationalities, but there is that one common thread, you know, where we do say that, yes, keep the customer at the heart of what we do and, and let's uh, look at what he or she wants, what the traveler really wants. Forget about where you come from. It really, really doesn't matter. Mm. And then finally, um, Karun, this, uh, this research study is, is, is quite an interesting approach um, in terms of your own marketing strategy. I mean, how important is thought leadership as a marketing tool for you? Um, firstly, I mean, thought leadership, these two words, are, you know, 15 years back, there were some very new words and people used to say, oh, thought leadership, what is that? But today, um, thought leadership is an overused and an overabused word. Uh, for me, thought leadership is all about building trust in a meaningful way which really adds value and substance to the business. Um, if you're a leader and if you have a thought, that's what the conventional definition is. Yes, you are a leader and you have some thought and some opinion, go out there and start sharing it with people. But if I look at my report, typically organizations do look at white papers as thought leadership cha uh, channels or thought leadership uh, endeavors. Um, but if it does not add tangible value to the business, the business is not going to accept it. You're not going to get a buy-in from your commercial division because that's where the money is coming in. At the end of the day, we are all in business, right? So for me, yes, if I don't trust an individual, I'm not going to work with that individual. And I really feel that thought leadership is, is a segue into building trust and is, is a bedrock, I, I would say. That, that's where your grounding starts. Mm -hmm. And how do you measure the value uh, of those efforts? Um, there are various ways of measuring those values. One is, of course, internally is first. Um, what is a business leaders telling you about or, or what is their feedback on thought leadership? Do they think it's adding value when they go and meet a customer? And that's always what we've, uh, that, that's, a, that's an internal study which keeps going on. This journey of me, again, was a classic example where we received comments from uh, our business leaders saying, you know what, this paper is really good because I was trying to crack this um, particular client. I didn't know what, what should I be talking on because it wasn't really a sales pitch, but he was so interested in what the travelers really want in Asia Pacific. So this was 
uh, a good segue into getting into his office and, and quite literally getting the business. So that's your, your internal benchmarking. The other is, um, to be honest, what media or what your other industry thinks about Amadeus. It is about a perception. And I'm of the firm opinion that perception is reality. Mm-hmm. Right. So sometimes when we are talking about certain issues uh, which, which um, are concerning or certain issues which are um, uh, which are which are trending in, in the marketplace, people have a perception of Amadeus that, yes, this is a company which is future ready. It knows what it's doing um, tomorrow. If 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 the, if we go through crisis or something, this company is going to is going to pull us out. It has that might. It has that power. And that's where thought leadership comes in, and that's how you measure it as well. Mm. So, do you me- do you actually measure the perceptions uh, people have of Amadeus? We do sometimes conduct perception studies done by third parties just to see where we are. We do have very specific parameters um, of of how we are positioned because if you get too much into thought leadership, there's often a perception by saying, "Wow, they talk really about the future." It, they are not talking about the ground reality. So that gap kind of widens. And that's where we need to really watch that space. So you, I always say work with the business, your communication objectives, your brand objectives and your marketing objectives can't be standalone. You have to understand what the business is. Only then you can come up with those marketing objectives so that that gap is narrowed. Okay, excellent. Well, Karun, thank you so much for your time today. Um, some really interesting insights then, and it would be a pleasure, I think, to have you back onto the echo chamber in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Arun. Pleasure. Pleasure is mine. This is Arun Sudhaman, and I'm joined by Tim Sutton from Weber Shandwick. Tim, hello. Hi, Arun. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I didn't want to make the mistake of um, spelling out your title again, because I got it wrong uh, on the last podcast. Just leave it out. I'm, I'm impressed you're talking to me while the England-India Test Series is still going on. I know it'll mean nothing to our friends in America, but it means a lot to you and me, right? It does, but luckily we chose a day where there's no cricket on. Um, That's right. In a couple of days, that I guess, the festivities will recommence, but of course the series... Hostilities will recommence, <laughs> <Indeed. right. laughs> But But the, uh, the series is now over, more or less. Anyway, we'll move on from yeah. that because we will have lost pretty much all of our American listeners at that point, which is to, to presume we had any to begin with. Um, I would like to talk to you today about um, this thorny topic of ethics in the PR industry. Um, and there are so many different ways and so many different angles when it comes to discussing ethics, especially given what we've seen in terms of um, Bell Pottinger's implosion last year. Um, but what I wanted to focus on today, if you don't mind, is um, is a story we covered earlier in the summer about Philip Morris International uh, and their search for global PR support. Um, mm. Quite uh, quite substantial budgets on offer, and specifically for the company's smoke-free products, um, Philip Morris International, or PMI, has been quite clear, the CEO has been clear in saying that the company's future now is smoke-free, um, mm. and that's where they are devoting their marketing budgets. Um, and yet, I would imagine that Weber Shandwick is still going to sit this one out. Yes, um, you're right in um, 
in saying that, we have a, um, a firm policy which we've had for um, some considerable time now. I can't remember when it was originally initiated, but certainly some years um, that we do not um, support tobacco-related products or services or companies. Now, you know, in making that statement, we're not um, saying we're holier than anyone or um, um, people are entitled to views. Um, that's just our policy, and it makes sense for us in a value sense, and it makes sense for us in for pragmatic reasons as well. Mm. So I wondered if I could perhaps um, dissect this a little bit. Yes. Um, why not? I can understand the aversion to tobacco, let's say. But what would be the issue with smoke-free products? Well, um, I think um, to the best I can judge um, from reading in the public domain about what Philip Morris said, I think it's um, probably um, being sincere uh, because it's expedient for that company and that it wants to evolve away from cigarettes. Um, if I understand it correctly, uh, and it's just my judgment, what the company appears to be saying is that it's moving to, or wishes to move to, as you put it, smoke-free, but I would add some words, mm -hmm. smoke-free nicotine delivery systems, mm -hmm. right? Okay, whether, yeah. whether that's vaping, whether it's, um, I think it's, is it the IQOS range, Philip Morris, I, I believe, the burn-free yes. yes. range, yes. And, and so they're, they're basically saying they would, they, they've set a goal, I'm not sure over what time period, but they've set a goal to um, realign their product range to smoke-free nicotine delivery systems of one sort or another, either the current system or, or any any future system. The, the problem, um, it seems to me, with smoking, and Arun, I speak as someone, as you know, who is sad enough and weak enough to enjoy the occasional cigarette in a working day, but the, the problem um, with smoking is that unlike some other products we could come on to, is that it's not a problem of misuse, it's a problem of use. <laughs> so uh, we know since the 1960s um, onwards, perhaps a little bit before that, um, but we know conclusively since the 1960s that um, the, the intake of nicotine, not just the intake of smoking, but of nicotine is harmful for health. This is not a problem of misuse, it's a problem of use, um, period. And, and therefore, you know, it would, I think, uh, uh, be our continued judgment, and we've not discussed this recently as a company at all, we've got no need to, we, there wasn't even a discussion, by the way, um, when this opportunity came up, not even a discussion at all. But I think our position would be that since smoking and nicotine uh, are associated clearly, absolutely, you know, if there's consensus about anything scientifically, um, even greater than that about climate change, that, that smoking and nicotine are bad for you. What, and one could go on to say, whatever the delivery system, then I think our position is, 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 is defendable and the right one for us. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, so what if I were to ask you, what is substantively worse about smoke-free products compared to, let's say, alcohol or sugary drinks? Okay, well, first of all, just before we go off smoke-free products, I, I do, I mean, there is clearly a legitimate, legitimate debate going on in some countries at the moment about 
uh, vaping, for instance, um, or whether it's Philomorsa system, or let's say vaping in, in general. Um, there was a recent report um, from the UK House of Commons, I think it was the Science and Technology Committee, uh, that said we should be having a public debate about vaping on the grounds that um, it had, in their view, uh, looking at the evidence as they saw it, um, been instrumental in the significant reduction in smoking of cigarettes. Um, and that they felt, the committee that is, and I don't have the report in front of me, but if I can paraphrase, I think they felt that the rush to ban e-cigarettes in a number of public places was actually counterproductive. There are others who um, hold the view that vaping uh, remains extremely bad for people. It might not be as bad as smoking, uh, but nonetheless, it continues to harm. Nonetheless, there is a legitimate public debate, it seems to me, um, speaking personally, about about vaping versus cigarettes. And, and, and clearly, there will be you know, more reports coming out, and it'll be interesting to see you know, whether public positions in, in, in countries changes or doesn't change on that. But now, come on, let me come on to your second point, which is, well, what's the difference between alcohol uh, and, say, sugary products? Well, um, I don't think it's an absolute black and white difference. If you take alcohol, um, for instance, the I think um, the general consensus, not the total consensus, because there is a, a, a medical view that will dispute this, but the general consensus until now, it may change in society, has been that alcohol, unlike cigarettes, is a problem of misuse, not use. In other words, that um, most people are able to drink alcohol and enjoy alcohol moderately, whatever the definition of moderately is, but we do have units, guidelines, and all the rest of it, um, are able to, to do that without any uh, negative either personal health effects or what you might call social effects, um, whether that's um, uh, violence, social disorder in the streets, um, domestic violence, and, and so on. Most people, are, the, the view has been that most people are able to do that, and that some categories of people um, are not able to do that or uh, need help, um, or not only do they need help, but in some cases they need sanction um, to stop them abusing alcohol. Now, um, there is a view um, held particularly by some doctors, and I've seen reports um, in the last couple of years that say, well, actually, you know, almost any use of alcohol might be um, harmful to us, or certainly much lower levels um, than the current um, current guidelines that are set. And it's possible that that view may gain traction. I don't know, as more research develops. I think the crucial difference, though, um, would be between alcohol and cigarettes, is that um, in the case of cigarettes, the issue was not just, is not just, you are harming yourself, um, but that you are harming other people. The reason that um, smoking bans gained such tractions globally through the World Health Organization throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s, where we are today, was on what you might, might call the ETS argument, the environmental tobacco smoke argument which is to say that um, not only are you, you know, if you want to harm yourself, kind of kind of fine, but you're harming other people by through what's commonly called passive smoking. And, of course, there was a scientific debate about that. But that's generally accepted. Um, it, it's socially 
whatever the evidence says, that's generally accepted. I'm not sure in the case of drinking alcohol, even, even if one were to accept the argument that it is harmful to us drinking medically and harmful to our bodies, I'm not sure um, what my having a glass of wine does to you, Arun, unless I get violent and hit you in the face or something, and then you have an issue. But it's not it's not harming you in the way that passive smoking is. And then on, on the third one, sugar, um, again, there has clearly been, um, you know, growing medical advice that we um, should eat less sugar. Um, I've not, I'm not at all an expert in this area, so someone may contradict me. I'm not aware uh, of any evidence that says you absolutely should never have any sugar. Uh, if so, there's a problem for programs like the Great British Bake Off, isn't there? Um, we all enjoy a cake or a, a Danish or chocolate, or and maybe we enjoy it too much sometimes. But I've not seen, you know, any arguments saying that, you know, you you are killing yourself by having uh, a cake. Um, and I, I, I'm, you know, who knows? It could come, but I've not seen that. So again, it seems to me to be qualitatively different from smoking. Mm. PMI would say that smoke-free products offer um, a, a massive improvement, I guess, in terms of helping people who are already addicted to nicotine. Um, does, does that argument not change this equation at all for you? Well, I understand the argument. Um, and as I just said a few moments ago, um, it's not just, you know, PMI saying that. There are, you know, independent um, people studying this and, and reports which have argued that um, cigarette alternatives for people who are addicted to nicotine, whether it be vaping or um, the IQOS system, and there are others out there as well, uh, should at the very least, how can I put it, if not encouraged, should certainly not be discouraged um, because the numbers of people smoking cigarettes, at least in, in, in developed countries, is, is, is reduced markedly. And some people would argue that's partly due to uh, the existence of vaping. And certainly anyone who wanders around, uh, walking around a street in London and New York, will see huge numbers of people vaping now that presumably um, were, I don't know, three or four years ago smoking cigarettes. So it's not that there's no force to that argument, and I think there's a, a legitimate area of public health debate, uh, which no doubt will continue. Um, but I'm just saying from our point of view as a company, um, we you know, do not wish to be involved uh, in supporting nicotine and tobacco-related products um, as of this time, and there's no, there's no uh, intention, to the best of my knowledge, to review that. Mm. I'm not trying to put either you or Weber Shandwick on the spot. I'm just quite interested uh, in the justifications that go into these decisions um, and you have quite eloquently explained them. Where do you or where does the agency, for example, stand on, let's say, arms? Well, it's, it's a difficult question again. And, um, you know, these are difficult questions because they're, they're issues of um, sometimes of moral grayness. You know, life is not black and white. Our personal lives are not black and white morally. <laughs> and our institutional rights uh, uh, lives are not black and white either. And um, we um, have, um, and 
will continue to work for uh, the defense industry um, or certain kinds of defense companies. And I do understand, again, as a, as a human being, um, the view that um, anyone who creates uh, weapons of, of any sort is, you know, I kind of understand the view that, uh, you know, they shouldn't be doing it, that, uh, that it's, it kills people. We're, we're against killing people. But the fact is that it is, rightly or wrongly, legitimized in um, nearly every country I can think of. Um, that country has a right to defend itself um, and has armed forces. And in order to defend itself and have armed forces, it has uh, airplanes and missiles and tanks and, and all sorts of other um, defense-related systems. That is legitimate for a company. Someone has to make them. They're entitled to do that. It's perfectly legal. In fact, it's seen as being in the public good uh, to be able to defend yourself. And uh, who are we to dispute that right? Mm. And, and presumably you'd have a, a similar view, obviously not for the, for the same reasons, but a similar kind of view to, for example, working for big oil. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, these, you know, again, there is a very legitimate debate about what kind of energy we should be using. I think there's a general consensus, again, as far as any consensus on these issues, but I think there's a consensus that um, it's a good thing uh, for uh, countries to move increasingly towards so-called alternative clean energy sources. There are huge efforts being done to do that. Some of those efforts, as you know, uh, are very much being led by the major oil corporations because it's in their interest to you know, diversify um, their, their, their energy production, and that will continue. Um, but I see, you know, again, unless we suddenly all take a view that we're not going to drive motor cars um, or, you know, we're going to all of us um, have to heat our homes by alternative sources tomorrow. These are perfectly respectable, legitimate um, organizations. And as long as the same guidelines as anyone else, as long as they're truthful, transparent, responsible, etc., um, then they deserve representation. Mm. Coming back to the um, issue of tobacco companies, what role do, or yeah, what role do an agency's healthcare clients play um, in this situation? Because one of the things I hear quite often is that an agency's healthcare clients would take a fairly dim view of their agency working also for the tobacco industry. Well, I think that's right. And the pragmatic answer to that is, of course, they have done and would do. And um, I would also be go beyond that in terms of you know being open and honest about this. We have obviously, like other companies, have a substantial healthcare business around the world for um, many of the world's leading pharmaceutical companies. And I think it's perfectly understandable why uh, those companies um, whose um, raison d'etre is to produce um, ethical pharmaceuticals, so-called, ha-ha, um, which improve human health um, and quality of life, um, should have an issue um, with their agency, on the one hand, doing that, and on the other hand, doing something which they would regard as completely and utterly opposed to that. And if the question is, or if the un unsaid question is, you know, it's in our own interests uh, because we've got a huge healthcare business 
um, not to do that. Well, yes, it is clearly, <laughs> but I, I, you know, so it's 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 absolutely supported by pragmatism. But it doesn't just rest on that. We we also take a view that we don't want to be associated by that, you know, irrespective of what healthcare clients say. Though clearly that that's going to be influential to us and to other people as well, and not just clients, but you know, international bodies, whether it's the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and many other key um, mm. civil <clears throat> stakeholders out there. It's not just the healthcare. So yeah, clearly that's the case. An agency like Weber Shandwick. Um, obviously the second biggest PR agency in the world. How do you decide where the line is when you have, you know, four or 5,000 people working for you and each one presumably has a different compass when it comes to what they believe are the, the kinds of accounts that they are willing to work on and the kinds of ethics that they'd like to see um, their employer demonstrate? Well, it's difficult sometimes, is the honest answer, Rune. And you've you've obviously um, uh, put your finger there on a very, very important point, which is um, that we have to pay very careful attention to uh, our, uh, the opinion of our employees, and uh, and of course sometimes they have very different opinions. You know, as a, a baby boomer, you know, I was personally brought up with the idea in, uh, when I came into PR. Uh, I think there was a prevailing idea back in the 80s that um, most clients, he says carefully, but most clients deserve representation um, in, in the same way as a lawyer uh, would take a view that, you know, uh, an alleged murderer w- uh, deserves a, a defense <laughs> and um, or any other so-called heinous crime. And that, um, you know, I think the view back in the 80s was that um, as long as the client... Um, you know, it was again being honest, truthful, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They deserve representing. And, um, again, sometimes when they were uh, extremely unpopular, um, but nonetheless, is a representation. You know, part of me still clings to that kind of ideal, but I think we also have to recognise that um, the world has changed, and and you know, we have most people um, in 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 our company and other companies are not baby boomers anymore. We're a dwindling band. And there's um, millennials and Generation Z, K, whatever you want to call it, who have very different value chains and evolved value chains. And, uh, and, and they form large, you know, part of our employee base and will continue, that will continue to grow. And of course, we have to take seriously um, what they think about things. You know, we, we want to attract the best people. We want them to feel comfortable in the environment which we offer them. Um, and that's important to us. So... Going back to your question, occasionally, or you know, two or three times a year, you, know, you do get um, uh, potential opportunities that come in that do cause us to, um, unlike the tobacco one, have an agonise. You know, is this the right thing to do? Um, it, you know, does this client deserve representation? How would our staff feel about it? How would our clients feel about it? And, and there are no, you know, simple easy answers uh, for some of those. You, know, you, you have to make, as in life, you make a judgment call. Sometimes you make a judgment call, which I agree, that says, well, you know, morally, um, this is ambivalent, or we don't have their view. But, but clearly, you know, a lot of people would be very, very unhappy with this. Therefore, we take a pragmatic view. We won't be associated by that. And that might be occasionally be unfair to a couple of clients that... Um, 
and my 1980s view <laughs> would deserve representation. But, you know, sometimes we take that pragmatic view. And in doing so, we also have to be careful that we're not setting ourselves out to be moral arbiters of the world. You know, we're a PR agency. And yes, we have, we, we'd like to think have clear you know, moral values as far as we can. But at the end of the day, you know, we're not the people who say something's right or something's wrong. We have to make a judgment call. And we make judgments call. And, you know, most of the time I think we get them right. But, you know, it's not easy. Mm. I suppose the other thing here in this debate is if PR agencies only work for companies and organizations that are already well behaved to begin with and don't have any ethical issues, then doesn't that undermine the power, let's say, of public relations to change an organization's behavior for the better? Well, I'm not sure where all these so-called perfect companies are. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure any company's perfect. I'm not sure any company's perfect. Um, so, you know, typically clients aren't like that. They're a mixture, aren't they? Um, you know, and what I mean by that is they, you know, m most clients that I know are hugely well-intentioned um, and try to do the right thing um, all the time. But they also have um, issues. Um, they have, you know, issues and, and internal debates. They make mistakes. They get things wrong. Uh, occasionally they have crises uh, because they got something wrong. And we're all of us um, in that boat. Um, no one out there is is perfect. So I don't think it's a case of, you know, we have perfect um, totally than that clients, and, and therefore that's all we'll ever work for. We work with we work for clients who have difficult issues. Occasionally, some of those issues are self-imposed. Setimes it happens to them from bad luck, etc., uh, etc. Et so I, I think. You know, there's huge, still a huge area of scope uh, by which a PR has to help these clients, you know, think through these issues um, and do the right thing for themselves, you know, uh, by expediency, of course, and but also according to what their different moral value chains are. And of course, companies have many different moral uh, viewpoints and standpoints out there. So life's complicated again. Mm. And finally, I wondered um, if you could talk a little bit about Weber Shandwick's decision to resign the Asia Pulp and Paper business a few years ago. It's going on for I think, five or six years now. Um, yeah. And that was, well, a, it was a decision a... taken for ethical reasons, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I, um, I think it's fair to say it was, and it was a difficult one, uh, I know, because I was very involved in it. So at the time, Arun, as you know, I was... Um, based in Asia, and um, that was it was very good and I have to say quite substantial um, client for us. Um, and the the client, um, as other similar companies, was under a lot of um, criticism um, for a number of reasons, um, but including um, whether it was severely damaging the a jungle wildlife environment in Indonesia, harming orangutans, uh, and a lot of the major uh, environmental pressure groups, Greenpeace and others, uh, ran you know significant campaigns against it and so on. Now, in Asia, um, at the time, we took the view that um, this company did deserve representation. And in fact, if you went to Indonesia at the time, um, you would have found a very large consensus of opinion saying. 
um, that there's some kind of, you know, Western cultural imperialism going on here from these pressure groups because it's hugely beneficial to the Indonesian economy. Yes, we care about orangutans, but we care about feeding our people as well. It's a huge employer um, and it has a right to operate. And, and certainly that was the view that, that initially we took. Um, we then had a, you know, a global debate about that. And these are, this is a perfect example of the difficult kind of decisions that one has to make. And our, Eventually, we reached a global consensus, which I supported, my colleagues supported that in this case, we would you know, resign the business because we just felt that the sensitivities uh, with the key stakeholders were, were too significant, the stakeholders whose relationship was important to us globally. And we um, resigned in, you know, in good order with a good transition period, helped that client move to uh, another company that uh, was happy to support them. And again, I, I, I kind of feel, you know, this in a sense wasn't a, a morality judgment um, of this client. Um, you know, they are entitled to operate and to have their business. But we simply felt these sensitivities and indeed from our staff globally were ones that we just felt that we, we this was not a position we wanted to be in. Because you're not just a big organization, you're a you're a global organization. I mean, do you, do you do you hold much truck with the view that you know what's considered okay in one country may be beyond the pale in another? Yeah, it's challenging again um, because as you know, as a global organization, there are of course there are different um, different views and value chains and. Not just different regions, but you know, even within Asia, there's many, many different viewpoints from India to China to Japan to Australia and so on. And you know, if you're sitting in New York or London, you can't hope to perfectly represent and reconcile, you know, everyone's different um, values. And it's a futile endeavour. So what you have to try and do is, as far as possible, establish a consensus on those things which. Um, uh, you know, do promise to be shared by most people in most places, um, and and that you have to operate some, you know, kind of consensus on that, uh, with the knowledge that sometimes people in some markets may think your decisions a bit odd or strange, or even disagree with them. But you know, all global um, companies have to do that, and again, it's it's challenging, but we try to do the best we can um, in the best interests of you know the company. And it's employees and partners. Mm. Well, Tim, thank you very much for your time once again and, and for being so candid. Um, it's an interesting area, and I suspect we have not seen the last of the PR industry's uh, brushes with um, ethical gray areas. Yes, I, I'm, it's, uh, it, there will always be challenges in this area, and uh, you know, no one can be arrogant or pocky that got it right. Just, mm. just try to do the best we can as it happens. Yeah, very good point. Thank you, Tim. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, thanks, <laughs> of course, as always, to our production partner, Marketeers, and to our sponsor, Bullet Group. We'll be back with the Echo Chamber next week. Thank you. You've been listening to the Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.